0: Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is, as, uh, as Daniel said, we are going through 2 Timothy. I want to thank them for leading us in worship and that song. I'd never heard it before. That's a beautiful song. I, I enjoyed it very much. As you, as you heard, uh, Penny and I are members of this church. We're terrible members, um, we're probably the worst members this church has in the sense that I have been out doing an interim uh, at one church or another for the last three and a half years. So, so this is what North Wake looks like. Greg, <laughs> it's good, good to see you all. No, I, 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 we are so delighted to be a part of this church and we appreciate the ministry of Carson and the elders. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to preach in, about these verses at the end of chapter three uh, Noah did a great job last week of leading us in the uh, first uh, 13 verses. And so <clears throat> we are looking at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, and uh, what it teaches us is about the one book that really matters. Now, this is the 50th anniversary of the song, Stuck in the Middle with You, uh, Jerry Rafferty Uh, along with his band, Steeler's Wheel. Uh, They sing about, or Jerry sings about about being in a situation that he'd rather not be in, and he's surrounded by people he'd rather not have around. Uh, You remember how the chorus to that goes, right? You know, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Now, in this chapter, chapter 3, Paul sings a version of that song. If you remember last week, uh, in the first five verses, Paul reads out the roll call of vicious people. In the first five verses, uh, he characterizes them using 19 different descriptors, none of them good. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, avoid those people. And I can almost hear Timothy saying, okay, I'll do my best. And then in verse 6 through 9, he goes ahead and elaborates. In verse 6 and 7, he talks about the clowns. Uh, Those are the ones that he talks about how they're gullible and naive and easily deceived. They're just not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Then in verses 8 and 9, he talks about the jokers. Those are the bad actors who have bad motives. I mean, they know that they're selling a load of baloney, but they do it anyway. And those jokers in verses 8 and 9 look at the clowns in verse 6 and 7 as useful idiots. And so that's the setup. And then Paul in verse 10 through verse 13, he gets very personal with Timothy. And he tells Timothy, you know, Timothy, you and I, we go a a long way back. And he recounts uh, some of the things that happened in the second missionary journey or alludes to them. He talks about uh, Antioch and Iconium and and Lystra. And he talks about how they've been in some crazy situations in verses 11 and 12. I mean, if you know anything about what happens in Lystra, I mean, they start out wanting to worship Paul. Before it's over with, uh, they... They stone him, drag him out of the city and, and leave him for dead. as adventures go. I mean, that, that's an 11. So we've been in some crazy uh, situations. We've dealt with some crazy people. Uh, in, he, in verse 13, he recounts how Paul has had those adversaries and enemies who've dogged him in the gospel ever since the beginning of his ministry. Now in the song, Jerry Rafferty is in over his head. He's confused. He's clueless. However, Paul and Timothy are not Jerry Rafferty. And in fact, verse 14 marks a decisive break. But as for you... And he goes in to talk about the power of the Scriptures. And in fact, it, it culminates in the next chapter for next week, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, in which he delivers a charge to Timothy. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Gavin Ortland at the Bush Center, which I direct. And uh, Gavin uh, referenced Blaise Pascal. And he talked about how Pascal had made a point Uh, And and Pascal said, there's really only two questions. There are two questions that dog all of us. And those two questions are, why am I here? And what's going to happen to me when I die? And he said, and the point that Gavin was making in his talk is that we live in a distracted age in which we do everything to keep from having to deal with those tough questions. That's why people look at their phones all day long. And uh, we have, we have uh, built into our lives just a whole litany of distractions to keep us from dealing with those difficult things. Let's remember, that's what the word amusement means, to amuse. Muse means to think. We have all kinds of amusements. In other words, things designed to keep us from thinking. Well, everything in this service, I mean, here we are. This service is designed to focus our attention. So what is it we should have our attention focused on this morning? Well, the Bible is the one book that answers those big questions. Now, Carson asked me to preach on three verses, and so guess what? This sermon has three points. So first, let's see the Bible's ability. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 14 and 15. What is the Bible able to do? The Bible is able to bring us to salvation. How does it do that? Well, he said, talks about the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Bible that tells you about Jesus. Now, when Paul says this, he's referring to the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament at that time. But what he says applies to us today to the entire canon. Think about it. How do you know about Jesus? How do you understand who he is? How do you understand the significance of what he's done? We, we know all these things because the Bible has communicated these truths to us. And if you'll notice, as you read through 2 Timothy, salvation is a major theme to Paul. Uh, he says it in chapter 1. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Then in chapter 2, he says something similar. He said, this is why I endure all things for the elect. Why? So that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In chapter 3 now, he says, the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Salvation is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. And he points out to Timothy that Timothy has this tremendous advantage. What is it? He said, you know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. Timothy was a blessed man in that he had lived a scripture-saturated life. When he says, you know those who taught you, he's referring back to who he mentioned in chapter 1. Timothy's dad, evidently, was not a believer, but Timothy's mother and grandmother were. And he says in chapter 2, in verse 1, as it begins, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, here's a simple question. Now, you could see how Timothy has been blessed and has a tremendous advantage in that he has spent a lifetime immersed in Scripture due to his mother and grandmother teaching it to him. So, a simple question Will teaching the Bible to your children guarantee that they will come to faith? And the answer is no. We don't live in that kind of world. Anyone who has kids knows that they are not little robots and that it's simply not a matter of coding them correctly. However, will teaching them give them tremendous advantages and opportunities? Most definitely. And so, while we have the opportunity, let's make the best of it. Let's teach the Scriptures to our children. So, Paul says, What is so great about the Bible? The Bible is able to bring us to salvation, and salvation is what matters to Paul. And so, I have great confidence that I can say to you at this moment that Paul would want me to ask this question to this congregation Are you saved? I ask this of everyone in this room Are you saved? Do you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Do you know that you've passed from death to life? Do you know that Jesus is yours and you uh, belong to Jesus? Have you been converted? Now, the Christian life and salvation is a whole lot more than the act of conversion. But it's not anything less than that. And so I would say to each and every one of you here, I'd ask each and every one of you here, uh, do you know Jesus and are you saved? Because as we go, as we go into chapter 4, uh, Paul says there's coming a day when each and every person will stand before Jesus Christ and will give an account. And so everyone here must answer and must decide what he or she will do with Jesus. What is the first wonderful thing about the Bible? It's its ability. It's able to bring Jesus to you and by so doing, bring salvation. The second thing Paul says is that he wants us to see the Bible's nature. What is the Bible? And he says very clearly, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so, why is the Bible able to do what it's able to do? How can it do what it's able to do? Well, its very nature makes it able to do what it's able to do. The Bible, think about how unique the Bible is. Uh, On average, 100 million copies of the Bible are printed each year. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, they believe that somewhere between five and seven billion copies of the Bible have been printed, making it by far the most published book in the history of the world. The Gideons distribute Bibles at a rate of approximately 100 per minute, somewhere in the world, every minute of the day, 24-7. So it's certainly a unique book, but Paul says it's more than merely unique. He says the Bible is divine. The Bible is the very Word of God. Look at the Scripture's inspiration. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, <clears throat> most translations that you have will say all Scripture is given by inspiration, but the ESV goes ahead and just translates it literally. What it says is all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so if you have the imagery here. It's, it's not you know, It's not that as Paul is writing these words, it's not that the Spirit of God breathes into what he's saying. That's not what it means. It means something actually more powerful. It's saying that, that God breathed out Scripture, just as, as I'm speaking or as you speak uh, we our breath goes across our vocal cords and as they go across the vocal cords it produces words. That's the imagery that we are to understand. Let me give you just a, a working definition of inspiration. Inspiration is the Holy Spirit's subtle superintendence of the human authors such that their words are the very words of God. Now if you'll notice I used the word subtle. I mean it... The Bible is God-breathed, but it didn't come about by a seance. In other words, uh, inspiration is not possession. It's not that uh, the Holy Spirit overwhelmed the authors such that they are, you know, it's like a Ouija board. No, 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 it's not operating that way. In fact, when you read the Bible, you'll notice that Paul sounds like Paul, and Jeremiah sounds like Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And Ezekiel, man, he really sounds like Ezekiel. And and what you see is, is that God so does it in such a subtle way that he utilizes the whole person. And so he so superintends everything that they're saying and writing such that when they write, the very words they write are exactly the words the Holy Spirit wants. So those words are the very words of God. And so, the Son brings us salvation. The Holy Spirit brings us the message. All Scripture, all of the Bible in its entirety, is the very Word of God. Now, if the Bible is inspired, and it's the very words of God, then that means that the Bible is true. And this speaks to Scripture's truthfulness. Because the Bible, God's words, are a manifestation of his character. And so, the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. The Bible is true in all that it teaches. It's true in all that it affirms. As Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he says, your word is truth. And so, if the Bible is inspired, this means it's the very words of God, And if they are the very words of God, they are true. And if they are true, then they're authoritative. And this speaks of Scripture's authority. The Bible is the final authority. The Bible is the supreme court in all matters of faith and practice. Now, at this point, I know what you're thinking, and I want to make sure you understand. I'm not saying the Bible is all the truth you ever need for anything. I mean... Two plus two is not in the Bible. Two plus two equals four. But you know what? It does. That's truth. And so there are, uh, how then is it true, say, like for the brain surgeon or for the interior decorator? How is it the final authority in every area? Well, it is going to be the final authority and it's going to be the judge over everything as the final word about our ethical system and the, the, the way we're supposed to live and think. Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit and joints and marrows. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is the judge over. We have our traditions. We have our doctrines. Uh, we use our reason. Uh, We have our experiences. In fact, we would say that there's some experiences that are necessary for for a person to have in order to know the truth. You say, what experience do you have in mind? The experience of the new birth. And so we're not denigrating all of those things. We're just saying that one sits in judgment over all of those things, and that's Scripture. And when we're able to understand it in this way, what we're able to see is that the Bible has the final word. And so what does the Bible do? So if, if the Bible brings us salvation because it's inspired, well then, what's its purpose? Well, that's what verse the third thing I want you to see. And we see that the Bible says, Paul says that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, there are, as you could see, there are four wonderful things that Scripture is intended to do in the hearts and lives of every one of us here in North Wake. First, it's to educate us. Notice it says, it is profitable for teaching. And here it's now referring to the content that shapes our understanding of the world, that shapes our view of reality, explains reality to us. As I've been preparing this message this week, I've also been reading a dissertation that was written by a missionary kid who grew up in Thailand in a Buddhist environment. And I've really enjoyed reading his dissertation. His dissertation, uh, he presents a model for sharing the gospel to Buddhists using the Christian doctrine of creation. You have to understand, Buddhism does not believe in Almighty God. They don't believe that there is a God above all. Buddhism, Buddhists do not believe that the universe was created. They believe that it has always been here. Um, they do not believe in any sense of progress, our purpose, our direction. According to Buddhism, life is misery and that the goal of the Buddhist is to stop suffering. And you may have to go through many lives of reincarnation to get to that point, but the goal for the Buddhist is to cease to exist. I can't think hardly of another worldview that's more directly the opposite of the biblical worldview. Because of that, Buddhists have difficulty grasping who Jesus is and why what he's done is significant. Now contrast that with the Bible. The Bible answers the big questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? Well, we're here because God created the heavens and the earth. We were made from dirt, but we were crafted in his image a creation is good but it's been marred by rebellion and sin we are brilliant sinners we have twisted affections and our faces are turned away from god things are not the way they're supposed to be but christ has come to redeem us and to reconcile us to God, and now we are able to serve him faithfully, and we eagerly anticipate Jesus returning when he's going to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness. The Bible tells us the big pictures. It educates us. But not only does the Bible teach us, second, it says that it confronts us. It is profitable for reproof. Ah, what is that talking about? I think you know what it's talking about. I know I do. There are times when the Bible grabs you by your shirt and gets in your face and tells you what you don't want to hear. There are times when the Bible tells you that you're wrong and you must change. Uh, It's almost, I don't know about you, but I can almost in those moments whenever Scripture does that, it's like John the Baptist is looking me in the face and saying, repent. Do you know what I'm talking about? Else, Well, in those moments, I can't think of a single time that I've ever enjoyed any of those moments. But I am grateful for them. I am so very grateful. And so the Scripture, it is, teaches us. It confronts us. But notice the third thing that it does, it's profitable for changing us, for correction. You see, it's not just enough for the Bible to tell me what not to do. Now that I've repented, what am I supposed to do? I mean, it's not enough to be told that we are wrong. We also need to know what's right. I mentioned John the Baptist, how he says he didn't just preach repentance. I mean, he he also told them after they repented what they needed to do. In fact, you have in Luke chapter 3. After the crowds and everybody had been baptized, they asked, well, what do we do now? And he answered to them, those who have two tunics to share with him has none. Whoever has food to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized, said to him, teacher, now what do we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Teacher, uh, the soldiers also asked him. And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Do you see what's going on here? After they have repented and turned from the wrong, John is now telling them in practical, everyday ways how they are to live their lives. And this is what the Bible does for us. The Bible gives us the grand narrative, the big picture, The the great canvas that lets us know what everything is going on, then it tells us where we are wrong, and then tells us how we are to live our lives in the truth, in the light of that. And so all of the practical, everyday things of life, this speaks to the Bible's sufficiency. I I got through saying, you know, (coughs) okay, uh, how does it teach the scientist or the, the... Oh, I don't know the the building contractor, and there's all kind the, somebody who's involved in in pharmaceuticals, and there's all kinds of things that happen that the Bible, you know, just wasn't happening in the time of Scripture. Uh, the Scripture's sufficient for all of us. It may not tell the brain surgeon uh, anything about neuroscience, but will tell him how to be saved. And once he's a child of God, it will tell him how he is to treat his patients. And that he's to view each and one of them as an image bearer. And how he is to conduct himself in everything of life. I like what John framed. And I have to give Sam Williams credit. Sam Williams is the one who first turned me on to this quote. And I've used this quote in a dozen different settings. And now I get to use it this morning. Because it does talk about what the sufficiency of Scripture is all about. Frame says, Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. It has all the divine words that the plumber needs, and all the divine words that the theologian needs. So it is just as sufficient for plumbing as it is for theology. And in that sense, it's sufficient for science and ethics as well. The Bible will teach you how to live. There's a fourth thing that it does, and that it it is also profitable for discipleship. Notice how he says for training in righteousness. And here we have the idea of the Bible as a spiritual discipline. I don't know how many times it's been said by me or maybe you, well, I knew that wasn't the right thing to do. I just didn't seem to have the ability to do otherwise. I think we all have, you know, think, well, why isn't it? If I know the truth, I still have trouble doing it. And the reason for that is, is because we are not brains in a vat. Intellectual cognitive content uh, is not enough. Do you remember Eugene Peterson's great definition of discipleship? It's a long obedience in the same direction. Proper knowledge is necessary, but it's not sufficient. The Bible also has to play a central role in our our formation, in our discipleship. We need to live lives in which we have training in Scripture again and again. And the Scriptures form our actions, forms our thinking, forms our way of seeing things. In other words, there is a discipling, disciplining aspect, a forming aspect to the Christian life that is scripture sufficient for that. And so what happens when the scripture teaches us, confronts us, educates us, forms us. Verse 17 tells us that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this language that he says in verse 17, uh, that's reminiscent of uh, Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about how we are equipped with the whole armor of God. And that's the same kind of of, of imagery used here. Whenever we are immersed in Scripture through the ministry of the Spirit, it equips us in a very complete way. The Bible is the one book we really need. Back in the 1860s, all of Korea was a hermit nation. You know, think about how North Korea is isolated today. Well, all of Korea was that way 150 years ago, and they uh, would not allow uh, foreigners to come in, and, and if you did, it was, a, it was a dangerous thing. Robert Thomas was a Welsh missionary. In 1864, he and his li- wife left Wales and made the four-month arduous journey to China before he could get to Korea, because back then that's how long it took to make that trip. Three months after they arrived, uh, his wife died due to complications of her first pregnancy. And so he lost both his wife and baby within three months after arriving on the field. But he stayed. And he had a gift for languages. He was a gifted linguist. And he had a burden for Korea. He wanted somehow to reach Koreans. Now, there was a particular dialect that educated Koreans uh, could read, and they were able to translate the Bible into that particular dialect. And so he wanted somehow to get the Bible to the Koreans. Well, um, there was an expedition. It was a U.S. naval expedition that was going to go up the river, there to Pyongyang, uh, and so it was an American military, uh, a naval boat, and on, on the ship there were uh, French diplomats who were somehow wanting to establish some kind of contact with the Korean nation, and so they, in, he, he agreed to be their translator for them. That's how he got to go on the trip, because he knew he could speak French, and he could speak, you know, he just amazing. He had a trunk load of Bibles. That's what he really was going for. He wanted somehow to get the Bibles to the Koreans. As they were going up the river, it was the boat, the ship was attacked by Korean soldiers. And the ship caught fire. And as a result, that meant that everyone had to abandon ship. And uh, Thomas grabbed Three Bibles in his arms as he jumped overboard, as everyone else did. And as they swam to shore, the Koreans killed them one by one. If they were American sailors, uh, they beheaded them immediately. As Thomas waded up to the bank, holding three wet Bibles in his arms, one Korean with a sword ran up to him and ran him through with the sword and killed him. He said as he killed him, he said he looked, the look on his face, he said, I I knew I had just killed a good man. The Bibles there now are in the water and in the mud. And one fellow picks up the three copies of the Bible and takes him to his home and he takes out the pages and he wallpapers his house with the Bible. Just uses it as wallpaper. Well, the word gets out, and so educated Koreans, those who could read, from all around started coming to the Bible house, and they would read, spend hours reading that man's wall because there had these amazing things on the wall. And Ligonier Ministries has this uh, wonderful article, if you want to read about it, that People began to be converted. The fellow who had ran him through with the sword was converted. The man in the house is converted. And they start a church. And that is how the great Pyongyang awakening began. And according to the article, millions and millions of Koreans have come to faith as a result. The article then says it believes that as many as 20,000 missionaries have gone out because Robert Thomas knew the power of the Word of God. It's no wonder that in two verses after verse 17, what does Paul say to, to Timothy? Preach the Word. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have not been silent, but that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Through your word, we know of your Son, Jesus. Through your word, we receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Through your word, churches are formed. Through your word, we are instructed. Everything I need, everything we need, God, you have given it to us in Christ Jesus in your church, through your word. So Lord, I pray, dear Father, we would be people of the book, that we would take to heart what Paul has said to us, that we'd seek salvation, that we'd have the proper attitude towards Scripture, and that we would use it for the purpose for which it's given. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name, and amen.